Welcome to They've Made Us. I'm Robin Ince. That I'm is... Helen Chersky. Oh, yeah, I was going to do your introduction for you, like oh, the yeah. patriarchy, Mike. Oh, yeah, oh. I'm that. taller than you. Yeah, you are taller I than me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think the matriarchy is getting stronger and stronger as I shrink, which is all good news as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, today's episode, we have got two wonderful guests on. Kevin Fong, who is not only uh, a remarkable doctor, he is also someone who has such a keen interest and deep knowledge of space travel and uh, indeed very very nearly got into the final 10 for being the European Space Agency's next astronaut. He is remarkable and we're also joined by my old friend Natalie Haynes. Yes, who has some really interesting ideas to share with us about ancient people, people from the ancient world who are still influencing her now. Um, yes, time to get started. Welcome to Helen, they've made us. They've made us, they've that's made the way us, it is. Yeah. So welcome to They've Made Us. Which is basically about, we have two guests, people who we love some of the things that they create. In fact, we love all the things that they create. And I don't want to put too much doubt in their mind earlier on that there's something well, I have you actually have now. judged them negatively on. Of course I have. And uh, one of the people on today as well is someone who the uh, first conversation I ever had with her was about surf Nazis must die. So who <laughs> knows where today's conversation is going to go. Uh, and what we wanted to have was a show in which we talked about inspirational people, wonderful ideas, and looked at the kind of the positives in a world where so many of the most negative voices are given high platforms and, uh, and big megaphones. So uh, we'll, the, our panel today is Kevin Fong and Natalie Haynes. And Natalie, it was. We, you were a big Troma movie fan, weren't you? Yeah, when Robin and I met, I was still a student. Um, and then my first job out of, uh, <laughs> after graduating with my degree in classics from Cambridge University was at Blockbuster Video, of course, um, where I was paid, in case anyone was wondering, £3.30 an hour. Um, and yeah, no, I know. And, uh, and I used to sell tubs of Haagen-Dazs for three ninety nine an hour, knowing that each one of them was worth more than an hour of my life. Just like, oh, so miserable. Um, and so, yeah, we had a fantastic little side collection in our blockbuster of, uh, of trauma films. And so, yeah, I had seen Toxic Avenger, Toxic Avenger 2, uh, Surf Nazis Must Die, Tromeo and Juliet, obviously. Tromeo and Juliet, probably the best, because Lemmy's in that. So that does really <laughs> it's elevate. It's always a mark of quality, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> So were you required to watch these as part of your no, job? Or was we this weren't just allowed to even, because um, you could only watch things that were a use certificate, because the uh, licensing of films in this country meant that you couldn't, we couldn't even watch something that was PG, because if an infant without a guiding parent came in, I would have been liable for a £10,000 fine or something. And I would like to say I took that seriously, but obviously on a Sunday afternoon when no one else was there, we used to raid the ice cream cupboard for broken ice creams and sit there watching Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> what you actually mean is we used to go into the ice cream cupboard, jump up and down on all, and then go, well, look at all of mean. these broken ice creams. Oh, what a shame. <laughs> yeah, no, it, was a, it wasn't my favourite job. Um, what was your first job then, Kev? Did you have an equally mundane, like, Saturday oh job or something? Back, I, I know what my first job was. I sold suits in Principles for Men in Oxford Circus in The Top Man. That's quite a posh first job. It was an accidental posh first job, yeah, because I needed, I, I needed a job, and I caught the tube into London and I went down one side 
of Oxford Street saying, give us a job, no jobs. And then I got as far as Marble Arch, and they said, uh, it's your lucky day. Uh, <laughs> just sack someone. <laughs> <laughs> and I was with my buddy, who'd been also with me asking for a job, and he said, uh, and, and he, he turned to him and said, do you have a suit? And he went, no. And he turned to me and said, do you have a suit? And the answer was no, but I realised that was the wrong answer. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, yes. And uh, he said, right, you've got the job. Uh, and then I turned up, I turned up on the Monday with my cousin's polyester suit on, and he said, you can't wear that. Get one off the rack. So free suit as well. So that was great. <laughs> that was my first job. Those perks just kept on coming, didn't they? They kept on coming. <laughs> See, the worst first job thing that I ever heard about was there was a friend of mine, and uh, she went to the job centre, and uh, she sat down, and at that point, obviously, you had to take any job you were offered. And they went, there's a, a position at the job centre that you're perfectly qualified for. <laughs> so she had to work there for a year. It was an absolute disaster. Um, the, uh, we're going to get started straight away in terms of finding out who your... Uh, well, I don't know whether... I, I probably shouldn't call them uh, heroes. But, um, Natalie, of course, you know, your, your world is filled with actual real heroes, mythical heroes, and many of them uh, misunderstood, mistranslated. Uh, so who is your first going to be? Well, my first choice is on brand, as I know you'd expect me to be, and that is the ancient Athenian playwright Euripides. Um, uh, thank you. I appreciate the... <laughs> hmm, uh, that is an acceptable answer, Natalie. It's what we hoped from you. Well, you've got it. Someone um, furious over there was expecting Aristophanes. Yeah, well, <laughs> too the frogs bad. and the wasps for you to sign later on. It's not going to happen, is it? No, there's somebody sat at the back with a really seminal copy of the Persians going, I don't understand how you could pick this charlatan over Eskola, slamming it down, storming out. But the reason I picked Euripides is partly because of... Um, Partly because I wrote my dissertation on him, I suppose. So he's been shaping my life for a really long time. Greek tragedy in general has shaped my life for a really long time. Um, occasionally in reality, certainly in my work. Um, and I think Medea was the first Greek play I saw performed. I saw Diana Rigg play her, so it really was the high watermark of everything, actually. Yep, pretty well everything. Even as I was watching it, and I was only a teenager, my dad drove me down from Birmingham to see her play it, because obviously he was in love with Diana Rick, because, you know, he's not an idiot. Um, <laughs> and even as I was watching it, I thought, I'm never going to be the same again. And I wasn't the same ever again. You know, it properly shaped my life. It's why you should always let kids go to the theatre, in my view. Um, but I wrote, I wrote my dissertation on that play. Um, I wrote my, my first novel set in the ancient world, The Children of Jocasta, took part of the story from the Sophocles plays, um, the Theban plays, as we tend to call them, although they're from three separate trilogies, in fact. Um, but some of it was from Euripides' uh, version of it, The Phoenician Women, which gives Jocasta much more of a voice than she has in Sophocles. Um, and then when I wrote my novel, A Thousand Ships, about the Trojan War, seen from the perspectives of its women, the Greeks, the Trojans, the goddesses, the mortals, um, it was only then, and I, I mean, I'd literally written my dissertation on Euripides, so I obviously should have noticed this sooner, that I realised that of the eight tragedies he wrote which survived to us, we've lost between 97 and 99% of ancient literature, um, on the Trojan War, seven of them had female title characters. Seven out of eight. You know, that he could see what I felt like I could see, which was that if you want the drama of a conflict, if you want an epic story, fine, go on the battlefield. That's what Homer does. That's why the Iliad is brilliant. Um, at least in part, why the Iliad is brilliant. Certainly why it's so violent. Um, but if you want the drama of a war, you have to come off the battlefield. 
and go to the places where the war is developing or the aftermath of the war or the people who are affected by the war but have no control over it. You know, and that was where the, the narrative tension, the dramatic tension could be. And so I realized I'd been writing women after Euripides for as long as I'd been reading him, which now is, you know, about two-thirds of my life, I suppose. And so, yeah, when people ask me if I had a time machine, when I'd go back to, which happens to you a lot when you deal with the ancient world, they always expect me to say the past, and of course I wouldn't. Uh, I like having a vote and, uh, <laughs> uh, and sanitation and vaccines and things. Um, but if I could meet somebody from the past, it would be Euripides, mainly because I want to know how he knew what women's lives were like. The, the monologue that Medea delivers at the start of that play is so extraordinary on the subject of, of how awful it is being a woman, not in the Bronze Age, which is when the play is ostensibly set, but in 5th century Athens, in fact, when the play is performed. Now, this, this monologue is being, it's been written by a man. It's being performed by a man. Remember, Greek tragedy is masked, as is Greek comedy, so all the roles were played by men. And very probably the audience at the Dionysia, the theatre festival, when it's first performed, were all men. We don't know if women were allowed there or not, but women generally didn't have a role in civic life in 5th century Athens, so it's probably the case that they weren't there. And yet somehow this speech in which she kind of enumerates how awful it is being married to someone when it doesn't work out, she says there should be a, a mark like there is with gold to tell whether somebody's real or fake, um, because we can judge gold, but we can't judge a man, and if a marriage is unhappy, that's okay for him, because he can just go out and fool around, but we have to stay at home. And there's nothing more miserable than being isolated from your family. And so it's such an extraordinary denunciation of life under an extreme patriarchy that it was still being read at suffrage meetings just over 100 years ago in the UK. And it's like, but how can this text, which at the time was nearly two and a half thousand years old, written by a man, performed by a man, first seen by men, it's so perfectly comprehend what women's lives were like. How did he know? Who was he married to? What was his mum like? That's the <laughs> stuff I want. And normally, as a writer, I'm, kind, I'm fine with the death of the author, you know, not ideally, personally, but um, I'm, <laughs> I, I'm fine with the work standing on its own terms. I don't, generally, I don't want to know much more about the author. But this one, I've, I mean, I've been reading the, the place that he left us for decades of my life. And now, I am ready for the author to come back to life uh, and tell me more about them. So how much can we... I mean, what do we know of him? What, uh, it must, it's a very hard story. I presume yeah. Anyway, glued together. What, what are, I, mean, I, mean, I presume a lot of it ends up being kind of so uncertain and, and almost based on rumours, does it? I mean, or as we like to call it, ancient history. Um, yeah, we don't know very much for certain, and the trouble is that a lot of what we do know is... Um, it's the hardest way to find things out because there's a, obviously a relationship of kind of grudging respect and affection, I think, I think, between him and Aristophanes, the great comic playwright. And you can tell that because Aristophanes has Euripides as a character in a couple of his plays, a play called The Frogs, which looks at um, the underworld. You go down on a trip to the underworld because Athens is in a, a terrible parlor state um, I don't really know why nobody's revived a production of The Frogs, truthfully. Um, and so Dionysus, the god of theatre, decides to go down to the underworld to interview Euripides and Aeschylus, the two of the, great, of the three great 
tragic playwrights to see which one has got most potent advice and then bring them back to the world to sort things out for us. Aeschylus in the play, the character, as Aristophanes draws him, says, as teachers teach things to children, poets teach adults, which I really like as a, as a notion. Um, and so they have this debate. Uh, and then it's incredibly childish, like all of Aristophanes. It's a very funny, silly play. Um, and in that, Euripides comes across as sort of a bit scrappy, but pompous, but, you know, fun. And there's also a play called The Poet and the Women, um, in which Euripides is sort of on the run from the women of Athens because he's portrayed so many murderous women like Medea in his plays that they're now furious he's made them look bad. And so <laughs> they're trying to sort of chase him down and, and make him stop telling the bad truth about them um, by pummeling him. And so he's on the run disguised as a woman and much hilarity ensues. Um, and so it's, I mean, obviously it's a really interesting question is was was Euripides viewed as this sort of radical figure in his own time? Yes, uh, he was probably exiled to Macedonia or made a voluntary exile to Macedonia and died his, at the, in his, having spent his later years not in Athens, um, a place that he obviously was both inspired by but also deeply troubled by. He writes very um, nuanced critiques of Athens within the tragedies which are set in the Bronze Age. So the Bronze Age is like 12th, 13th century BC. The Trojan War is around then. And he's writing in the 5th century. So 800 years ago, as far as we are from uh, Chaucer, I think, something like that. Um, and so he, he's disguising his kind of political critique uh, within these plays when Athens does something particularly heinous in the Peloponnesian War, the 30-year war that, that rocked the second half of the 5th century BC. Um, you can sometimes believe that you can see it, imagine that you can see it, think that you can see it in Euripides' plays. Um, but, may, I mean, the trouble with trying to build a, a real person out of a comic portrayal, which is what we're trying to do when we think of Euripides and Aristophanes' work, is that it's a bit like... The example I always use, because I can't beat it, is imagine if you lived two and a half thousand years in the future and the only evidence you had for the existence of Barbara Streisand was the South Park episode, Mecha Streisand. <laughs> where a giant robot Barbara Streisand menaces South Park. And two and a half thousand years in the future, there are literary critics or classicists or like me going, right, so is she like robotic? Is that the joke here? She's like really robot. Is she big or is she small? Is that the joke? Which way around? And you wouldn't get close to the, the it's, you know, giant robot Streisand is funny because it's funny. You know, it doesn't, ha it doesn't have any <laughs> relationship to reality. It's just funny. So when we try and draw conclusions about real people from Aristophanes' portraits, it is very much like trying to, to do that. And how certain, this might be a daft question, but you know, in lots of places where there's been a very strong patriarchy, piracy is one, right? There have been women who disguise themselves as men. Yes. And who lived entirely convincingly as men in order to be a pirate or whatever, you know. And is there any chance, like, did that, is there any chance of that having happened in the ancient, I mean, obviously, you've just told us you don't know, Yeah, right? we but don't know. Um, the, the depressing thing for, you know, today's upstanding feminists is what we would like, I think, is to hear that Athenian women who had these incredibly cloistered lives, the higher class you were, the more withheld from society you were. So if you were a relatively poor woman and you had to go out and work on a vegetable stall or something, you would at least be outside and see people. But uh, an upper class woman, so Euripides' wife, in other words, something like that, because only upper class people could write 
and, and would have the time to write um, in a society which, although it's predicated on slavery, of course, um, doesn't necessarily give everybody the, the opportunity of literacy either. Um, and women in that class would very probably have spent time unchaperoned with their husband, their father, their sons, maybe a brother. But there's a sort of absolutely overriding anxiety in 5th century Athenian lawmaking is that if a man who isn't you cops sight of your missus, he will probably get it on with her. And it, it's just constant. And so there is, there's not really a suggestion anywhere that women might have a, a more deviant life like that. And when there are female characters in myth, the Amazons is the obvious choice, um, who live as men do, you know, they don't have to dress up as men, although we might see them as dressing up as men, because when you see Amazons fighting on vase paintings, they're incredibly popular design in vase paintings, they tend to be wearing very ornate um, leggings or trousers. Um, so they look, to our eyes, much more androgynous um, than women in you know, a beautiful chiton or a himation or whatever, a lovely long drapey dress. But of course, to the Greeks, and indeed to the Romans after them, trousers were a deeply effeminate and, and untrustworthy garment. <laughs> so they don't look like men to the audience those vase paintings were made for, even if they do look like them to us. Have you read um, A Short History of Queer Women yet? I have not. It's a lot of fun, by the way. It covers both the, the Amazon <laughs> and book, uh, you know, Sappho. It's short and it's funny and uh, it's very entertaining. It's very informative as well. Just thought I'd mention it. If you've not read it yet, it is, uh, it's one of my uh, Warwick bookshop. You know, do you have, a, I'm going to ask all of you this actually, a favourite book, like when I do book talks, I always try and make sure that I also recommend other people's books so I don't look too narcissistic. <laughs> and every now and again, I was talking to someone at the back and they bought Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin, which is one of my favourite, and I love that bit of passing on something. And last night I was doing a gig uh, in, where was it, Bristol, and I managed to sell all the copies of A Short History of Queer Women with a brief reading as well, and very few of my own books, which means I'm still art. So uh, <laughs> it's... Uh, Kev, do you, do you have something where you think, oh, I'm so glad I've recommended that and I now know this is in the hands of other people? Oh, that's a tough one. Helen, what about for you when, when you recommend something and you know it's in the hands of other people? Who does... Uh... It's a great... So what I, what I like, the books I recommend like that are the ones that were recommended to me. And the ones I like recommending most are the ones that are older. So actually, The Count of Monte Cristo, it's not a science book, but it's such a good story. And what I like about it is the idea that it was written, you know, in the 1700s sometime. And the idea of writing, keeping such a huge book together and consistent... Um, and, you know, these ideas about revenge and devoting an entire life to revenge and picking apart this story and doing all that in handwritten things, you know, way before it was easy in any way. Um, and the fact that it's therefore been passed on from person to person, like I kind of like the chain idea that it's not just that somebody great, you know, we, everyone, you know, you've all written books and I would all recommend all of your books. But I think there's something special about recommending a book that's be from before us. Like, because I think it's easy to focus on the new. And actually, there's too much to yourself. read. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're doing it already, right? Maybe in your books, it's kind of built in that you're, you're sort of... Also, there's less of a threat. You know yeah. they're not going to be on the same time as you at a book kind of yeah. uh, festival. <laughs> um, they're not going to be trying to sell your books for you. 
I finally started reading the, uh, Tristram Shandy, uh, which I know I should have read years ago. And uh, um, but uh, now, Natalie, I mean that's a lot of your. I, I look, quite often at gigs, I meet people who uh, listen to stand up for the classics who are you know sometimes quite young. They're teenagers, sometimes younger than that. Who they're getting into these ideas for the first time. Yes. Who is of all of those episodes that you've done of all of those people you've dealt with? Is there someone you just think, oh, I, I can't believe I've now handed this person to so many people? Yeah, I mean, it's you can never tell which which ones will land in a particular way. So, I mean, I love that people discovered Lucian. Lots of people discovered Lucian through Stand Up for the Classics episode we did on him because I have long loved the fact that he wrote the first piece of sci-fi. You know, 2,000 years ago, he sent people to the, <laughs> to the moon where it turned out. I mean, and it's so sci-fi. There's a, a battle going on between the creatures of the sun and the creatures of the moon. It's like, yes, this is pure Star Trek. And he uses loads of tropes which will become common in in sci-fi, like making things really big or really small. Um, so the monsters that they encounter are gigantic insects or tiny you know, normal-sized animals, I suppose. Um, and some things have wings made of lettuce. How is that not great? Um, and so, I, you know, there it's are... It's terribly modern, isn't it? Very organic and biodegradable and all that kind so of thing. so modern. Yeah. And Does it have lasers you can hear in space? Okay, it doesn't have lasers. <laughs> it doesn't. I'm not going to lie to you. There are zero lasers. a butterfly that had wings made out of cabbage? And then it would also find itself irresistible to eat. I mean, that's an evolutionary dead end. I presume that's why he didn't do it. Right, okay. I, I'm I sure he could see the issue. On yeah. how far the cabbage wings went. Yeah, no, I'm sure he could see the issue. So I'm glad that I got to give people Lucian. But also, you know, Sappho, I make a real effort to write programmes about women from the ancient world, and it takes forever, because, you know, there's not much evidence for Euripides. Right, <laughs> divide that by 100. <laughs> and that's what I started trying to make a programme about Sappho. And I've absolutely zero regrets. It takes me longer, generally, to write an episode on a woman from the ancient world than it does to write the rest of the series. But otherwise, you know, we wouldn't get to hand over the names of people like Aspasia to everybody. So it's fun to do. Well, maybe it's time to move, like, move, see, see who kept... Well, it's good because uh, it is science fiction, I think. Oh, so you've got, you've right. got hints. I, I know who Finally this one link. is, I think. I was wondering if it was going to be an astronaut. Uh, who is it? It is an astronaut. <laughs> I, what can I say? So it is Captain James Lovell uh, uh, who commanded... Apollo 13, but also was a crew member for Apollo 8. And kind of using him sort of as a metaphor, well, not as a metaphor, but I'm using him as sort of like a representative of all of the, uh, of all of the astronaut corps and all of the astronaut corps of that period. Uh, I, and I think, you know, you were talking about what was it that made us and what was the influential. And, and so I chose him for a number of reasons. One, because my parents, when I was growing up, were really clever at using human space exploration as it was in the 70s as a vehicle to inspire me. They, they hadn't been to universities, and they, but they knew there was this thing around, and they knew that the idea of human space exploration was so big that it must be worth talking about around the table. It might be something to drive you. And so although I always say it was my love of space exploration that drove my career, it is my parents' clever use of that. To, to, to drive as a vehicle for, for my for my uh, you know my whole pursuit really of of science and and medicine and everything else, um, but also because I remember going to school and uh, and some of you may or may not remember, but basically when you were learning to read in the seventies, they had these through the rainbow series, right? And they were numbered, and then they got into bronze, silver, and gold, and you got more and more excited as you got further and further through. And I think it was, I was trying to work it out, I was looking it up on the web, but I think it was 
Gold Book 4 has the story of Apollo 13. I would have been like six, seven years old. So obviously it was written very simply. And, and I would have known nothing about it because the mission of Apollo 13 happens in 1970, so I, before I was born. Um, and, and so I'm reading about this, and even in whatever it is, abbreviated form in language a seven-year-old can read, it still captures my imagination. I still understand that this has been a heroic and dramatic rescue of a crew from certain death. And, and it you know, drives, drives me on. So, so I chose him because of that, because of that first early, well, that early memory of him. I chose that because that genuinely did go on to, you know, that love of space exploration did drive me on. Uh, <laughs> but by the time I'm applying for, for university with <laughs> no one really explaining what that process is and you get all these perspectives, I don't, you know, I'm looking at these like, these are crappy black and white photos of, of sort of like ancient looking buildings. I don't know where I want to go. I go through the University College Applications Handbook and it's alphabetically arranged uh, and I go, anatomy, uh, anthropology, archaeology, astrophysics, and that's it. That's as far as I get through the book. Uh, and I think that'll keep my astronaut dreams alive. That's uh, a fascinating thing, to be driven by a short attention span <laughs> then go into astrophysics. That's a clash yeah. of ideas. Oh, yeah, you know, look, look, all of this is well-sublimated adult ADHD, <laughs> yeah. I think. So, so, so I, I, I think... Um, uh, and, but it did all of that drove me and in a real the afterglow of all of that given to you so early and those stories continue to drive so much so that I get to the end so 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 I you know I, I come out of like actually I, I'm doing astrophysics and I had thought well maybe I should do something a bit more practical I've enjoyed it but uh, and I think I should try maybe go to med school um, but it seems very, very, very difficult. You have to be a very, very special person. And then in my second year of physics, I live with medical students. And one day, <laughs> we come home from the pub and I look at them dribbling on each other. And I think, how hard can it possibly be? And, uh, so, so, so off I go. But, but it carries on. And so my final year of medical school then, um, I'm kind of looking at the verge of sort of jumping off into that world of medicine. And I think, well, the thing that drove me in medicine that drove me in this direction was my love of exploration, particularly human space exploration. So in my final year of medicine, I just wrote letter after letter after letter after letter to NASA saying, can I come and do some time with you? Can I come and do some time with you? And then I'll never forget, I was there in my flat and I heard the letterbox go and the letter drops onto the mat and it's a NASA American envelope, you know, thin, long with a NASA meatball in the corner. Uh, and inside, and I unwrap this thing like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory and the Golden Ticket thing, and, I, and inside there's this letter that says, "Stop writing." <laughs> and, but, but they, you know, and I went on to work for NASA with, with mostly with shuttle program in, in the end, and then then later still, you know, after all of that, I finally get a chance to interview Jim Lovell in a library somewhere outside of Chicago, and he's enormously generous in his, with his time. I mean, I think. Of all of the Apollo crews, I've spent more time with him than any, anybody. I spent, in separate days, I spent three, three days in total interviewing him and his wife and everything. And he, was, and he sees it as his duty to tell the story. He says, look, you know, the public paid for my adventure. It's, this is me paying back. And, and, you know, you think, wow, you've got probably better things to do with your time, but he doesn't think that. He thinks this is the duty of him and his crew is to retell that story. So, so I, I think he's 
an inspirational figure. I chose him also because you know, I love the idea of hope in particular at the moment. I love the idea of having something hopeful. And you know, he, he talked when we interviewed him about you know, Apollo 13, as I'm sure everybody in the room knows, endures an explosion or a rupture of one of its oxygen tanks as it's headed away from Earth, 200,000 miles from Earth, approaching the moon, where it takes out its life support, its power, it, its, its guidance system, and effectively their main vehicle. And then over a period of several days, they solve problem after problem after problem. And, and at that first event, they're all going to die. That, they're, they're definitely all going to die. But they solve the problems. They defer death to the next day. And then the next day arrives, and they, they solve the problems again. And the next day, and the next day, until they get to splashdown. And there's a moment where, when I was interviewing him, you know, it was kind of, they were all getting to that stage where they, they, they said they, they were in there. He was, must have been in his early 90s when I talked to him about it where well, they could afford to be a bit more honest and less, you know, have less bravado about it all. And I, and I said, I have to ask, when that event happened, when that oxygen tank ruptured, did you think you might not survive? And he said, I had a pretty good idea I wouldn't survive. You know, and, and, and then later sort of says, when he's sitting there and they're approaching the moon and he's there with Jack Swigert and Fred Hayes, and he turns around to Hayes and he says, take a long look at the moon because it's going to be a long time before anyone sees this again. And, and what he meant by that, I think, is that we're probably going to die, and, and the program's probably going to go uh, into hibernation while they work out what they've done. Mm. This is it. This is the last look, the last human look. But then I said to him, I said to him, did you, at that point, you had children who were young, some teenagers, and, and, and some, you know, uh, high school, I said, did, did it occur to you to want to talk to them at that point? You think you're going to die? And he said, no. And I said, why not? He said, uh, well, you don't know for sure you're going to die at that point. He said, and, 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 and I said, oh, and you, you don't want to contemplate that because it's going to give you extra workload? He said, no, I didn't want to give them, my family, extra workload. And he said, if there came a time where we knew it was definitely going to end, sure, there'd be time for goodbyes and words, uh, but that wasn't going to happen until you know we absolutely knew nothing was going to work, and that was going to be the point at which we ran out of air to breathe. We were going to literally fight until our last dying breath. And, and so as a sort of an ideal of hope in the face of adversity, incredible, really. And so um, for all those reasons, and, for, and he's a genuinely lovely person. Not all spacefarers are. <laughs> I shall name no names, but... <laughs> but um, I think most people know at least one of them. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Which is, I think, because of certain kind of, you know, th actually, a lot of them are very humble, aren't they? And, and, and you, you said that interesting thing uh, about, I think it was about James Lovell and also about Rusty Schweikart from Apollo 9, when we talked a while ago, which said not many astronauts have the same bandwidth that they had, which to be an astronaut itself is remarkable and you have to have an incredible mind. But to also have, because some of you might know, Rusty Schweiker is very interesting philosophically about it, as is, is James Lovell as well. Yeah. And you said they have an extra bit of bandwidth, which means they were able to really also have a contact with the emotional, not personal emotional, but literally human emotional, the broad emotional effect of what it is to go into space. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, I, I experienced that 
myself. So, so when I'm out at work doing sort of, you know, emergency medical stuff, early on, you're so utterly consumed by the task that your head doesn't come up and you don't experience anything else except for this chain of events that you have to do. And later, when you free up a bit of bandwidth, you begin to experience the wider em emotion of the scene, which actually isn't always great for you in that context. But it's, it's, it, it, this is true of the astronauts as well. You know, For those that were accomplished astronauts, they were able to take in something of what happened to them out there. And certainly Lovell was very emotionally in touch. I, I would say for me, the two who are most emotionally in touch that I know of and I've talked to are Lovell uh, and Michael Collins. Michael Collins very much so. Uh, and indeed, it was a bit of a toss-up for me as to whether I would try and bring Michael Collins or Jim Lovell. Um, but, but, but yeah, a absolutely that's the case. And Lovell was philosophical. He was a genuine explorer. You know, he decides to call his, uh, uh, his module Odyssey. Uh, and uh, uh, command module Odyssey because of that representation of a journey, and 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 then their mission patch has the words ex ex luna scientia, so from the moon knowledge. And so he is an explorer, and both in Apollo eight and Apollo thirteen, he is an explorer doing an explorer's job. So I love him for that actually. Um, uh, uh, uh. So I've got, I'm just interested in something that just, and it just strikes me about, you know, there's, there's this kind of really interesting contrast in, in the journey you just told. You know, the early inspiration came from, you know, the early Apollo stories, but, and your history, you obviously know the history far, far better than me, but it strikes me that what originally came back from the astronauts at the time would have been very impersonal, very micromanaged by NASA. You know, now we have this culture of sharing and oversharing, and at the time, if, certainly when I've looked at early interviews, it's very, they're not telling the stories, they're not they're not fully human in what they're communicating almost because it's kind of very, you know, test pilots sort of strict. They're very limited. And yet, you know, what you've done is, is bring out those stories, right? You know, you've had the opportunity and, and they become human later. But the inspiration came before. The inspiration came before you knew just how human it had been and how, you know, I'm just interested in that sort of, in a way, the idea itself was enough to be inspiration. And then it, even without all the human stories, and then it becomes even richer as you get as you go further through. So, so I think they're the product product of their times is the first thing I'd say. The second thing is they are all drawn, nearly all of them, are drawn from test pilot stock. And the whole thing about test pilots is they take these barely flyable machines into the air, they fly them along, and then they narrate what's happening. So they sort of sit out there, think, "Oh, engine one looks like it's flamed out. Uh, engine two looks like it's on fire. Whole aircraft's really shaking now. I think it's breaking up underneath me." Uh, I think I'm going to uh, punch out in about five, four, three, two, one, bang. And so there's not a lot of, if you're emotional in that situation, you're not going to do very well. So, so that was their base character. And so, you know, and in fact, you know, there's, there's, there's his description on Apollo 8 passing the moon is sort of like, it's mostly gray <laughs> and desolate. It's gray, kind of. And it's like, there's nothing there. Well, I think Isn't that the reason we've got Earthrise? <laughs> I've always been told that that was the thing, is that they were a little bit disappointed by it being mostly grey, so they looked in the other direction and went, that's where we live. Well, well so I, I hadn't heard that one, but, but the, I guess the point is, is that it's doing them down to say that they didn't have that range, because actually Lovell does spot that photograph and, and gets uh, his crewmate to take it of the Earth hanging in space, you know, rising above... 
uh, the horizon of the moon. Uh, and also the Apollo 8 crew do that, understand the significance of what they're doing, and, you know, do that reading from the book of Genesis, you know, and, and religious or not. It's a moving route. They understand the enormity of it. They understand why they're reading that at that time. And, and Lovell himself says, I'm not particularly religious, but, but you know, it, it, mm. it made sense for me to do that. So I think, I think we superimpose what we remember of Neil Armstrong on the entire core, and they were all very different. Michael Collins in particular, extraordinarily good at conveying the emotion uh, uh, and the excitement of the whole thing. Uh, and Lovell in particular, I think, in, in fact, Lovell, I remember talking to him and some of the mission controllers about, you know, they fly on Apollo 8 in 1968. And 1968 is a, is, is a year of great turmoil in the, in the United States. And so the, it's always interesting, I think, to look at the space program, not just as this thing in isolation, but the societal context in which it's happening. 68 is the year in which there's assassination of Martin Luther King, of Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, uh, there's uh, the Vietnam War going on. There's, there's, there's riots in the streets in the United States. And, uh, and he talks about how this mission, their mission uh, of Apollo 8, which sends for the first time a crew away from Earth further and faster than ever before, is the needed symbol of hope. And, 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 and indeed, you know, we made a podcast about it at 13 Minutes to the Moon for the BBC, and that episode's called Saving 1968. There's this wonderful story as they round the moon and they have that reading from the book of Genesis. Um, uh, the mission controllers say, and we got home and the telegrams are coming and the letters are coming and we're sorting through them. Everyone's like, it's great, you've done great. And then there's one that they read out, it's a, uh, this, this telegram says, thank you for saving 1968. And, and that, you know, it's just an amazing moment. So, you know, so much there. And, and I think he is one of the great explorers amongst, you know, a cadre of quite significantly impressive explorers. And I do think he was quite emotionally in touch with what the enormity of the experience was. So, so yeah, I, 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 I really do. Natalie, that's interesting as well, hearing there the use of, of the Odyssey, which is, I suppose, reminding us, because I, I know that Carl Sagan also wrote sometimes about, you know, the, the, the myths that we had been brought up with. Yes. And the fact that the stories you are dealing with are not merely stories of some past. They are stories of being human, and they are stories of they, the, that relevance, as you were saying. You know, when you first went to the theatre, and there you see Diana Regan, you can feel, obviously, you didn't just feel, I am watching a historical play you felt also this the, the, this relevance that is... And, and I just wondered whether you feel sometimes we people can be quite dismissive of something like, you know, the, the, the great Greek plays and, and the use of myth when, you know, oh, that's all years ago, that's an old thing. Yeah, or fantasy, sometimes people dismiss it as, I think. And it's like, you know, sure, but that's also all literature and all belief begins with gods and monsters, essentially. So you can dismiss it if you want, as, you know, not another bloody elf, be my guest. But you just look kind of like an idiot. So <laughs> carry on. But mm. um, so, I, I mean, I think it's, it's absolutely true, of course, as you say, that the, the, the best people in their fields pretty well always acknowledge the past as part of how they got there. Nobody, apart from a truly stupid person, thinks that they have achieved everything they've achieved with the help of nobody to get to it, uh, you know, who could... We shan't go through the list of current names here yeah. in the news at the moment. Oh, just to use trending on Twitter. We dealt with that before. The Unfurl uh, scroll. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's undeniably the case. So, yeah, sometimes I kind of think 
the the use. I mean, NASA in particular has always loved using. Greeks and generally space scientists have loved using Greek and Roman myth. There's a reason why there are so many of those constellations named after my lot. Um, <laughs> and, you know, sometimes it's really interesting because as a classicist, I often find I don't know a particularly obscure myth very well, whereas scientists know it really well because it's the name of a constellation that they really like. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad we had this moment. This is the one chance I have, though, to remind everyone that an odyssey is a journey home. So when you're exploring, you should go out on an outward-bound trip, but your odyssey is your journey back home. So something's just occurred to me that's never occurred yes. to me before. I don't know whether you know the answer. Hand it over. <laughs> so we, in the Western world, we have named, as you put, you know, planets and things after... Um, classical figures. Who did they name their planets after? I mean, what also was classical figures? But further in their own time or further back? I mean, so is this this thing where the people, you know, people go, oh, the past. I'm always naming our planets after the past. Yeah, but the ancient Greece is two thousand years long. Um, so by the time people are at a point where they're starting to name things in the sky and and record it so that we can know about it. It, these myths are already centuries old. They develop in an oral culture. So we have no idea, I guess, really, what they were calling um, anything very specifically. I, I, I'm, I'm really, really disappointed, actually, because I thought you were going to say that the ancient Greeks called them the equivalent of Dave, Bob, Sue. Yeah, yeah. that would be <laughs> ideal, I yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, but I suppose a Cassiopeia is probably a less exciting name if you're Greek. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, maybe that feels like Sue. I don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the versions of earlier writing that we have, like Homer, um, the version of the Odyssey or the, the Iliad that we have, although Homer lived in the 8th, 7th century BC, he's writing about the Trojan War, 12th, 13th century BC. But the version that w we have, obviously, unless you read Greek, um, is going to be whichever translation you pick up. But the translation of the Greek will be from the uh, late 6th, early 5th century, probably BC, the version codified by Pisistratus is editors in Athens then. So there are so many layers of, you know, I hesitate to use the word palimpsest casually, but I'm just gonna. There are so many layers of, of text on every time we look at a, every time we encounter an ancient myth of, of both visual arts and literary arts and before that oral storytelling. And we can't see most of, of what is there. We can only see the the top layer or the top few layers. So, you know, there are there are so there's so much un unseen material. You should like this. It's like the sea. <laughs> we don't let, let's start me off on the ocean. I'm just quite interested. Oh, you have about that the wine dark sea thing with Homer, don't you? Oh yes. Oh, don't make me tell you how color works in the ancient world. No, 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 no it's no, fine. Yeah, <laughs> really? Big, no, no, no. Don't. But don't worry. But it led to a big argument, uh, which Alan Moore won and Brian Cox lost. So. Uh, <laughs> ancient world saw colour differently from how we do. Oh, don't worry. It, okay. went, it went in so many Because it's not to do with being dark. It no. says wine-like sea, and it's not to do with the shade. People in ancient Greece... Do you all know this already? People in ancient Greece probably um, looked at colour and, and defined it in terms of how glittery it was, how sparkly it was, rather than the shade. The shade is, is something relatively late, so there is no... The, the word for a, a kind of beautiful, um, young skin colour is chloris, like a greeny yellow colour, and we generally wouldn't think that somebody very young and lovely <laughs> looks a bit green. Phryne, the most beautiful courtesan, as she's usually euphemistically translated, um, is it's a name that sh she's such a great beauty that her name is given to later high-class prostitutes and, uh, and uh, other smart-mouthed women who people disapproved of. Um, but, but it's the name of a toad, because they had the same skin. 
And people then go, and then what you get is fantastically inept translations going, it's sort of like sallow. And it's like, well, it's probably glowing. You know, like a, a toad skin is going to have water on it most probably so it'll look slightly sheeny and her skin although somebody brilliant recently suggested to Edith Hall that it was freckles like the speckles on the toad <laughs> freckles, which is lovely either way but anyway we tend to categorize color as the most important thing and the ancient Greeks didn't do that they went for sparkliness so the sea is like wine not because it's purple um, but because uh, although I'm sure sometimes it is in a storm but because the way that light plays on a moving sea is like the way that light moves through wine when you pour it I think I approve of a colour scale that's entirely based on sparkles. I like it's this. It's impossible to disprove, isn't it? It's like it's been yeah. designed by a four-year-old girl. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hooray, more unicorns now. <laughs> let's do, because we're running out of time really. so uh, let's have your second secret uh, inspiration then, Kevin. Mm. So it's a cheat, um, because it's more than one person, but it's the same person. So it is, of course, Doctor Who. Uh, <laughs> well, the gasp from over there, yeah. so I'm very pleased. <laughs> Uh, and it's brilliant, really. So what age, hang on, what was, who was your first doctor? Let's just... What, you, you, so uh, I think my f first doctor that I have a proper memory of is four, so that's Tom Baker. Right. Um, and, and exactly, little cheer there. I think, uh, <laughs> but here's the thing about, about Doctor Who's a dinner guest is you have starters with four, and then you reach over, slip in some henlock, and then you can get maybe 11 for the mains. Right. Uh, and then you get the Dalek gun out, you give them a zap, and then you get, you know, 13 for the desserts. So, so, so you can... Some of them you're killing immediately. Right. No, 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 no. They, they, and you go, oh, no, 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 Not no. Not killing, you know. Well, you to regenerate. Rearranging. In, in a, yeah, in a time <laughs> not of their entire choosing. So your yeah. favourites are? So, so, I think, so, I think, so I think four for Tom Baker, because growing up, he's the one that I knew, right? Uh, and, and that whole... Fantastic idea of a hero in a world where all your fiction is people running around with laser guns or, or machine guns, and that's how you, you do heroism in the world. You know, this guy's running around with a long scarf and bag of jelly babies, you know, taking on the universe. And, and I just loved that idea of the difference of him and, and, you know, that whole, you can just outsmart people that way. You can, this is a superpower. This is a way that you can do it. And you don't need to be beating people up. You don't need to be shooting. In fact, you know, he's quite anti-guns, actually. And so, so in, the, in the classic series, I think, I think four was my fave. Also, there's a level of eccentricity to his performance, which even, say, with Patrick Troughton, I don't think, you know, John Pertwee is a, kind of, you know, almost a, a, a comic strip hero, William Hartnell's a kind of grumpy old man. Uh, Patrick Trout plays a flute or whatever it is. And then there's something otherworldly. Uh, he, he, he's utterly otherworldly. Exactly that. And I think he's the first one to really capture that. If an alien inhabited human skin, this is what, this is what they'd be. They wouldn't quite get it. And they would be a bit odd in a particular environment. So he's, he's my, you know, my starters. And, 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 then, and then 11, uh, which is Matt Smith. Um, so this is a beautiful image, though. So Peter Davison, he goes, bang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Colin Baker, bang. <laughs> Sylvester McCoy, bang. Paul McGann, I'm not even really, okay, fair yeah. enough, bang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you've got to get to the good stuff. And, and, uh, so so, so, so um, I hadn't really thought about having to do serial regeneration. But anyway, so... I'm surprised you haven't thought about Christopher Eccleston, who running in a green jumper is literally the only time he's ever been sexy. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I know Maybe Doctor Who's main job isn't to be sexy, but occasionally I would like there to be a Doctor Who who I'm like, yeah, I would. And <laughs> in this instance, that would be Christopher Eccleston wearing a green jumper and running. 
Maybe You're he's the, like, you know, the after coffee mints, something like that, right at the end. Have you just set me up with Christopher Eccleston and Doctor Who? Yeah. I like how this has gone. We have wonderful powers here at yeah. Shambles. <laughs> but but I, I, think, I think you get... I remember when they introduced the idea of Matt Smith doing the job, and I thought, I don't like this. I mean, he's substantially younger than me, and he looks like he's about five, actually, when he takes that role on. But he does a brilliant job of doing this piece where he... And he said it when he was sort of taking the role. He said, you know, how do you behave, you know, like you're a 1,000 years old, but in the body of someone who's quite young? And, and actually, he does that brilliantly. But also, the writing is so fantastic through that whole thing. And there's more darkness there. You get the sense of this older character who, who actually... Everything isn't just a bit of a joke. It actually gets super dark sometimes. Uh, and the whole, um, for me, the exposition of the whole character and the thing I found so attractive about him really all the way growing up is hope, again, always hopeful in the face of things unsurmountable. Um, difference, you know, able to be different and difference is his superpower. Mm. Regeneration is this, you know, this idea that I've actually found really useful in life of this idea that you're... You are in life the same person, but you do reinvent yourself periodically, and you take a bit of yourself with you, but you become something else. And, and you know, you try and take the best bits with you and carry on, become something again and again and again. I think that's quite a liberating way to think about it. Um, and, and so all those things, I think, for me, centrally, I found quite inspiring. And, 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 and the thing is, although until, you know, the 13th Doctor, it was always basically a white, largely middle-aged man. You, you got it. You understood that he could be, or she could be, anyone at any time. And the difference was, the difference of him, the uniqueness was the superpower. And I found that, you know, for me growing up, really actually quite a powerful thing that in a world where for me growing up, I didn't see myself really anywhere on screen, here was someone you could map, actually, you know, this is a breadboard that anyone can be eventually, mm. ultimately. So, so I, you know, all of those things. And then finally, you know, he was a doctor. Uh, 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 who knows what kind of doctor, many And, you know, and, and, and I eventually became a doctor, maybe not the doctor. I love that idea that you get disappointed when you find out he's a doctor of philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> I've wasted my whole life on this. This is. Uh, I love that. Uh, just quickly mention, I, d I did an event with Louise Jameson recently, and I went back and watched all the episodes with Leela, and that, that they are the. F she is the funniest. You know that bit because Tom Baker didn't get on. Well, she was really nice, but Tom Baker was really threatened by her because she's really like she's the most interesting character. She's yep. incredibly strong. She's incredibly quick-witted, and she's her comic timing is absolutely amazing. Yeah, and yep, it's yep. quite interesting watching that as well. Um, yeah, and no time for his philosophical musings. Just yeah. hit it with a dagger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah no. Shall I kill him, Doctor? <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, Natalie, who is going to be your mystery one? Um, I have chosen Hobbes out of Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> I like the way that could have gone either way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because he is my spirit animal and my perfect pet. And if the world were as Philip Pullman imagines it, he would be my daimon. Um, I have been reading Calvin and Hobbes since I was a kid. It's like the shorthand between me and my brother at all times, even now. Um, what if one of us says... I brought snacks. Are they good snacks? What kind of snacks did you bring? Yeah. I can't help it. Um, you can tell the quality of an artist by the quality of his smock. I fully agree with this position. <laughs> and so, yeah, I would choose 
Hobbs. They are great, aren't they? I, I always think the, the, the combination of, of Calvin and Hobbes and also when you look at Peanuts as well, those, yeah. with both of those creators, you see a really deep level of humanity. I mean, I, I, I think Calvin and Hobbes is one of the most remarkable uh, cartoon strips, as, as indeed Peanuts was, in terms of sometimes mm -hmm. dealing with not merely philosophical, but emotionally terrifying things. Yeah. You know, when, when they looked at, I think it's, it's the death of a bird, isn't it? And, and, yeah, it, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, those, those, and that imagination, of of Calvin as well. Yeah, Bill Watterson is a sort of I don't know. He's there's something so shiningly beautiful about him as an artist and a writer. Um, and obviously, you know, as as fans of his work, we have to respect the the fact that he decided to stop doing the comic strip when he did, and that you know then he he also decided to sort of not have a public persona for a really long time. And so like all kind of Watterson devotees, you just go, no, I don't want to know more about you. You wouldn't like it if I did. Um, and that's why I didn't pick him. I don't think he'd like to come to dinner. So obviously I would take Hobbes anyway over, over Calvin, because I'm not an idiot, but over pretty well anyone. Because, but you're right, of course, Schultz was such a gorgeous thinker and, and writer too. Um, and you know I'm a huge fan of, of Peanuts similarly. Uh, I, I think my, my idea of what America is is shaped more by those two cartoon strips than by virtually anything. Certainly as I was growing up, um, it, it's a constant source of surprise to me how, how much less like, like those worlds it's turned out to be. So, oh, okay. oh, well, all right. Um, Except I think it's a constant reminder of actually what a lot of people can be and yeah. could be. And it's like, you know, when I've been touring around, particularly this year, I, I, one of the things that I've looked at in so many of the rooms and libraries and bookshops that I've been to is one of the most mis underrepresented groups in the United Kingdom are uh, the kind people. And, uh, and there are so many of them. And, you know, again, we go back to that thing, which is so much of the media is trying to stoke you to be cold, to be narcissistic, to believe that everyone else is getting something you're not. And yet so often the experience I see of the world is not those people who are just, you know, shut it off. And I think, you know, you read Peanuts and you think this is a way that you can be. It's I mean, true. Although, to be fair, in Calvin and Hobbes, I mean, Calvin isn't particularly nice person <laughs> all the time he and Hobbes do have I'm a terrible feminist he and Hobbes do have a club called gross get rid of slimy girls um and so you know and and yet still when men are being you know you know how sometimes Robin um and I know this because we are sometimes at the same places where it's happening then alpha men go a bit alpha menish then I will invariably say to somebody oh it's all a bit get rid of slimy girls isn't it because it's like well why else would you be withdrawing into your weird I don't know let me bang my my chest nonsense. Like I, can't, I don't have the energy to despise you. I'm too tired. I haven't even got pity left. Um, so uh, then I obviously additionally appreciate the shorthand of, of get rid of slimy girls for that. But Hobbes has a sort of purity to him that even though he's kind of corralled into Calvin's borderline misogyny against Susie, um, who I think was based on, on Bill Watterson's wife. <laughs> She's just the cutest that obviously, you know, I know we're not supposed to say to girls and I wouldn't say to my nieces, um, you know, he's mean to you because he likes you because it's a really unhelpful narrative. Um, but in the case of Calvin and Hobbes, he is mean to Susie because he likes her. And, and Hobbes, of course, is majestically incapable of maintaining the pretense of not liking Susie. So he's always there like, Susie likes me. Uh -huh. <laughs> he likes her. 
and so on, where he goes to you know have tea with her, and uh, Calvin accuses him of being a traitor is one of the great moments in literature, I think. Also, there's no greater title, I don't care, crime and punishment, whatever, scientific progress goes boink. Absolutely right. Because <laughs> it does, doesn't it, quite often? Elon Musk saw that only the other day, didn't he? It did indeed. The, um... Um, you know, there was talk of going back to the moon, and I think we have to think about how we do that and what we see when we do that, and that it's not just the same exercise as last time and that we see hope in it and we see Earth more than we see like, oh, well, we have to just pioneer and dominate everything that's further out. So I, I'm only because I think that it's a, this is the type of hope we need. So maybe the sentient fluffy tiger can, you know, go to the moon and, you know, that, and that get, we're going with both I mean, ways. they go everywhere. That's the thing. Yeah. They're always going on mad. You can journeys. put them in a bag Spaceman and they're fine. would take us to the moon yeah. more successfully and thoughtfully, I would suggest, than any Earthbound astronaut has so far. Um, thank you very much to uh, our guests, Kevin Fong and Natalie Haynes, and to Helen Chersky as well. Uh, if you can support the show, then go to patreon.com uh, slash cosmic shambles. And if you can't support the show, we're always going to try and make sure they're free. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much to the Royal Institution as well. Uh, we have new episodes coming up very, very soon. And thank you all to our audience who came this evening as well on a Friday night to the Royal Institution. Thank you to you. Dave Made Us was produced by Trent Burton and presented by Dr. Helen Chersky and me, Robin Ince. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network and is presented in association with the Royal Institution. If you'd like to watch the video version of this podcast, you can. Visit youtube.com slash cosmic shambles. And to enjoy more great science podcasts, documentaries and live events, visit cosmicshambles.com. Thank you.